Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Tuesday, October 4th. I'm Joyce Napier. Evan Solomon is off today. Coming up, Hockey Canada on the defensive. Our board, frankly, does not share the view that senior leadership should be replaced. Hockey Canada defending its leadership team today on the organization's handling of sexual assault allegations and the funding it got from players and the government. Can and should the federal government intervene? We bring in MPs on the future of minor hockey in Canada. And François Legault's big win. I'm going to be the premier of all Quebecers. François Legault's Coalition Avenir Québec party secures another decisive victory. But does the popular vote reveal deep divisions in La Belle Province? We take you to Quebec. Plus, Atlantic Relief. The Prime Minister pledges funds for storm-ravaged Atlantic Canada, but following the natural disaster, is his government living up to its own climate commitments? We bring in the Environment Commissioner. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. I believe that we have changed. We're continuing to change. I go back to a comment I was, I was making earlier, which is... I think that there is a significant risk to the organization if all of the board resigns and all of senior leadership is no longer there. I think that will be very impactful in a negative way to our boys and girls who are playing hockey. Will the light stay on on the rink? I don't know. We can't, we can't, we can't predict that. And to me, that's not a, wor a risk worth taking. And that's why I stepped into this role. And that was interim board chair Andrea Skinner testifying today and after the past summer's revelations that Hockey Canada used their national equity fund to settle alleged sexual misconduct claims. The organization is on the defensive again. This week, the Globe and Mail reported that it has allegedly used player registration fees for a second multi-million dollar fund to cover claims. The organization's former chair, Michael Brandamour, and interim board chair, Andrea Skinner, both came under parliamentary scrutiny today. At a parliamentary committee, Ms. Skinner vehemently denied that there is a second fund being used to pay out sexual abuse claims and said Hockey Canada has, quote, an excellent reputation. It's inaccurate to say that the Participants' Legacy Trust Fund was used to settle sexual assault claims. That trust was established to cover uninsured claims for a period in which Hockey Canada and its members were self-insured between September of 1986 and August 1995. As we know, it can take a very long time for, for complainants in sexual assault cases to come forward. And so when the trust was extended in 2020, it was extended for the benefits of the members who had contributed to that. Not... Hockey Canada, as I said, is not a, is not a uh, is not receiving money under Thank that. Thank you, Ms. Skinner. So, did today's testimony clear things up, or will the feds put Hockey Canada in the penalty box? For more, let's bring in CTV News parliamentary reporter Annie Bergeron Oliver, who's covering the story for us. Uh, good to see you, Annie. Uh, this is sort of sadly the story that keeps on giving. What stood out to you from today's testimony? Well, Joyce, I think what's interesting in this case is all of the MPs from all the different parties are unanimous in saying that they didn't really learn that much today and they're disappointed in Hockey Canada. 
all of the MPs from the different parties talked about how Hockey Canada appears to be not very transparent, that they don't really have a lot of accountability. Uh, some of the MPs were saying it didn't appear that Hockey Canada officials were really prepared for this committee meeting. They didn't have answers. And a lot of the MPs said that there are more questions now than there are answers. They even said some of the questions that they still had remaining from the previous committee meetings in June and July are still outstanding. And so I think really what you have from this is a level of frustration from all parliamentarians that is only growing. And I think that if you look at the reaction on social media from people in the know, they say that this really didn't do anything to help gain more trust in Hockey Canada or in the leaders who were supposedly there to help move the organization past this crisis and to help change the culture at Hockey Canada once and for all. But the former chair testified today, the interim board chair testified today as well. Do we get any clarity at all? Do these families, uh, these hockey families, are, are they getting any clarity at all today after these two witnesses took the stand? There really isn't any clarity here. For example, you know, at the beginning of this testimony, a conservative MP started talking about meeting minutes that we hadn't really heard about before. And the MP was reading off the fact that Hockey Canada in these meeting minutes that hadn't been previously disclosed talked about after the last committee appearance that there was sort of a need to change the narrative, a need to sort of pitch this uh, trust fund as a way to, you know, help players and to help participants and a need to change the narrative to make the public understand that this was a good type of fund to have. Um, you know, you also look at this new equity fund that was released. I think it's called the Players Legacy Trust Fund. And this was something that was in the news yesterday. And today, these MPs were asking questions of Hockey Canada officials about the fund, how it's being used, how much money was there. And again, there weren't a lot of answers. The Hockey Canada officials didn't say how much money was in this Players Legacy Trust Fund. They said it hadn't been used for cases or claims related to sexual misconduct, although uh, they said it was for uninsured uh, issues and uninsured claims. And again, the MPs kept pushing them. Are you sure this doesn't include sexual misconduct or it can't include it? They also said that this was not a Hockey Canada fund, that it was based more on the provincial organizations. But a number of individuals I've talked to said Hockey Canada should know how much money is in this fund. It should know exactly how it's being used. And the provincial organizations yeah. still do give that money to Hockey Canada. So when Hockey Canada says this player's legacy fund isn't theirs, that it's not on their financial books, the people that I've been talking to say, well, that doesn't matter because ultimately it still rests within Hockey Canada's purview. So I don't think there really is a lot more answers today. And as these parliamentarians are saying, there really is just more questions that have been yeah. raised because of today's testimony. Hockey Canada saga continues, and we will have some of those parliamentarians right here in studio. That's CTV News' Annie Bergeron-Oliver. She will have a story on The National tonight. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Joyce. And joining me now, we're going to give our MPs panel a chance to weigh in. Were they satisfied by today's Hockey Canada testimony? I'm betting no. So joining me now in studio, our parliamentary secretary, the sports minister and the health minister, Adam Vancouver. 
conservative Canadian heritage critic and committee vice chair John Nader and NDP House leader and committee member Peter Julian. Good afternoon. It's very good to have you in studio, the three of you. This is the first time uh, for Power Play since the pandemic. So see, we're inaugurating it with you guys. But good to be um, with you. Adam Vancouver, I want to ask you this. So, you know, my, my question is, what is going on? And that's a, too broad a question. So, you know, should, should we get rid of the board? Should the board, I know we can't, but should, what should happen is there even a quick fix here? I don't think there's a quick fix, but to answer your question directly, what is happening is not enough, not enough progress. Back in the spring and in the early summer, we hosted meetings like the one today uh, with the same players, and we made very clear demands. We said, you need to be a signatory to OSIC. You need to come on board and demonstrate a willingness to change. You need to demonstrate with clear actions how you're going to shift the culture of this abuse in hockey away from that towards something more positive. And at the time as well, MPs were unanimous, and many Canadians that chimed in were too, were dissatisfied with the capacity of the leadership to achieve those goals. And they had all summer, and they came back, uh, you know, now we're in the fall, and it's clear that not, not enough progress has occurred. So I would agree with your earlier statement that uh, MPs from all parties were totally dissatisfied with the answers that we received today, and it's clear that there's still a lack of accountability from Hockey Canada. And the only silver lining is actually you guys all get along on this topic, which <laughs> is kind of refreshing. But, John Nader, I want to ask you, because you read uh, at the beginning of the testimony, some sort of inside memos that were going on. There seems to be a disconnect between what Canadians are perceiving, what is what actually they're hearing, and, and what they're telling each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we saw in the minutes of their board meetings after those uh, hearings in, in July wasn't an effort to change the culture. It wasn't an effort to change how hockey is governed in Canada. Rather, it was an effort to change the narrative, uh, to change the comm strategy, which is not what Canadians are expecting. Uh, Canadians that are emailing us, all of us, uh, want to see real change. They want to see a culture change. They want to see Hockey Canada take accountability uh, for past actions. And to read in these minutes from the board meeting that rather they're concerned about the narrative about uh, portraying this in a different light, that's really frustrating and, and quite frankly a, a disservice to uh, the thousands of uh, hard-working Canadians who, who volunteer their time for, for junior hockey and minor hockey across the country. And Peter Julian, you, you talked about a lack of transparency. There are meetings behind closed doors, there's no minutes, um, you know, people don't really know what's going on inside that organization. First of all, should we know what's going on? And, you know, how do you make it more transparent? You know, you have no power to, to vote for the members of the board. So, like, how far can you even go? Well, well hockey parents expect transparency. They, they scrimp and save to put their daughter or son into Hockey Canada programs. That's hundreds of dollars that those families are, are basically giving to Hockey Canada. So the need for transparency is something that the public expects and hockey parents expect. And instead, what we've had is obfuscation and stonewalling around important questions. We found out today that members of the board receive a $3,000 uh, <coughs> championship ring every time a, a Canadian team wins a championship. Well, that's a massive amount. That's tens of thousands of dollars over the course of a, a few years. And at the same time, we have the same lack of transparency around horrific allegations of sexual violence and sexual abuse. And what we have is a, an organization that doesn't respond when people ask them questions that they should be accountable on and transparent about. And this is what I, why I think Hockey Canada has completely lost the confidence of the Canadian public. I'm gratified that the Minister of Sport agreed today to the NDP uh, demand, the 
a push for a full uh, comprehensive audit of Hockey Canada finances. That may answer some questions as well. But the Hockey Canada leadership needs to read the room and read how Canadians are responding. And the idea that everything is fine and the leadership can continue, I just I don't think it holds water with any of us. So, Adam, let me ask you this. So they're coming up for re-election or election and there are ele board elections in, in, in November. What are you what are you hoping for? I mean, she said, Miss Skinner said, you can't be doing that. They'll turn off the, the lights in the in the rings. It's going to be a disaster if you. So can there be change? without, you know, what she was predicting. In other words, you know, all of a sudden junior hockey will disappear. It precisely. And I think what is evident to Canadians is that they're, they're engaging in a PR exercise to save those jobs and the potential for rings and, and the, the, the jobs that they enjoy, uh, rather than conducting a serious audit on their culture. And I think what Canadians need to know is that these are elected people and there are voting members of Hockey Canada from each province and territory that will have an opportunity for them to weigh in in a democratic way on whether or not they have confidence in Hockey Canada's leadership to conduct that culture review, reanalysis, and that change. And I think if they're you know, tuning in and watching the committee deliberations today and some of those responses they heard from that leadership, I think you know, Canadians will expect those voting members uh, to ensure that a change starts uh, as soon as possible. Because first of all, hockey will always be part of Canada's DNA. And that's a good thing. Sport builds character. Sport is a healthy thing for Canadians. And, and I you think, would know. Well, my, my biggest fear through all of this is that Canadians lose trust and confidence in sport in general. And I don't want that to happen. You know, we, we must stand up for the values of sport and ensure that Canadians, particularly kids, have access to safe sport, affordable sport, and barrier-free sport that's non-discriminatory, that parents don't have to worry about their kids being abused if they drop them off at the rink or the pool or down at the creek. And that's what, you know, we as MPs have to stand up for and to say that the Canadian sports system deserves integrity, people who have that leadership capacity to make Agreed, a change when one's evident. What power do you have? Totally agree with you 100% as, as a parent. How do you do that? How do you ensure, like you guys are just MPs, not that it's you know, not a fabulous job and all that, but how much sway do you have and how much power do you have to make that clear and to make that happen? Well, I think the biggest thing we have is, is the ability to shine the light on these issues, to make sure that Canadians are aware of what's going on, and then hoping that uh, th this results in meaningful action. So when these board positions are up for re-election, I'm hoping that the big question on uh, each voting member's uh, mind is, will these new board members commit to meaningful change within the organization? And if they're not willing to commit to change, then they don't deserve a place at that board table. So there needs to be a meaningful change within the board, but also meaningful change within the senior management team at Hockey Canada, because they have lost the confidence of Canadians. Quickly about this audit that you demanded and, and Pascal Satonge, the, the sports minister, agreed on. What are, you ex what are you hoping from this audit? Because we have a, a Supreme Court <coughs> justice also investigating. So what are we hoping to find out? Well, the Supreme Court justice, uh, with, with uh, all the respect I have to, to the justice, the reality is Rocky Canada has not followed up on recommendations that have been made before. So they, they go through this process where they get recommendations and then discard them. As far as the audit is concerned, the, the kinds of questions that we were asking today that re remained without an answer. For example, how much money is in this fund? Are there yeah. other funds uh, that uh, Hockey Canada has squirreled away money into? These are registration fees. But do they have fees. an obligation to reveal that? 
in, in, a, in a comprehensive audit, they, all of those things they will would. be exposed. And okay. this, this is what I think we need to come to, because Hockey Canada doesn't appear to be accountable or transparent on its own. They're very isolated, uh, and they have a, a very disconnected view from reality, quite so, frankly. So quickly, so I don't have a lot of time, and I want to hear you two. On, what are you hoping for now? What's the next step here? Well, the first step back a couple of months ago, where the, the Minister of Sport was very, very clear. She made some clear demands that the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner is, is not somebody that it, there is going to negotiate with, uh, with Hockey Canada, that they must be a signatory to that. Safe sport is a priority for Minister St. Ange and our government. The audit was also part of that, a financial audit to make sure that there's no public funds utilized. And, and thirdly, most importantly in my view, change for the future. And that's a change in leadership and a change in culture. Quickly, huh? CEO needs to go. There needs to be a new CEO of Hockey Canada who's committed to making meaningful change within the culture of hockey in Canada. But he's already said he don't want to go. And that's why there okay. needs to be a change in the board leadership to okay. make that happen. That will be our next conversation. <laughs> okay, Adam Van Gouverden, John Nader and Peter Julian, thanks so much for this. It was lovely having you in the studio. Come nice again. Thank, Thank you. you. And coming up, a decisive win for François Legault and his party, Coalition Avenir Québec, in last night's Quebec election. So what does Legault's landslide victory tell us about the state of Quebec politics? We will do an election debrief next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. I say that Quebecers form a great nation. I mean all Quebecers from all regions, of all ages, of all origins. I'm going to be the premier of all Quebecers. And welcome back. A crushing victory. The Coalition Avenir Québec, led by François Legault, you just heard him right now, picked up 90 seats and secured a second, even stronger majority in Quebec. Legault's promise to be premier to all Quebecers fresh of a campaign, off a campaign trail defined by French language protection and controversial comments about immigration. So do Quebecers believe this will be the government for everyone in the province and how does this shift the political landscape across the country? Let's find out. Joining me now are Faskin Council David Hurtel. He was a cabinet minister in the Quebec Liberal government and Anne Lagasse-Dawson, a commentator and journalist who ran twice as a federal NDP candidate and also Anne and I worked together <laughs> Many, many years ago. Nice to see you both. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. Um, you know, I, David, I want to start with you because that's 90 seats. Uh, that's um, a second majority, even bigger majority. And despite all the controversy uh, during the campaign, polls were telling us that. So none of us can say, oh, I'm so surprised. What do you make of this result? Well, you're right, Joyce. This was not a surprise, but I, I think... Uh, the, the most surprising thing is the extent of which the four opposition parties, their support overall actually, for three of them, cratered. I mean, the surprise, uh, and it was coming also, was the showing of the Conservative Party of Quebec, which went from 1.4% in 2018 to 13% this time around, while electing no members. But uh, at the same time, uh, what's shocking to me is the performance, for example, of the Liberal Party of Quebec. Uh, Joyce, you know this. Uh, this has been uh, for 155 years either 
uh, contending for power or uh, forming government. And it has now gone from uh, 31 seats in 2018, forming the official opposition to 21 seats, but also more importantly, from 1 million votes in 2018 to not even 600,000. That's over 400,000 votes being dropped, Joyce, and that's enormous. And also only being able to elect members basically on the island of Montreal, aside from the Montreal. And and so for for a party like the Liberal Party, it it is devastating. And also, I got to say, uh, the, the performance of Quebec Solidaire was very disappointing as well. Same thing. They, they dropped their one big seat in the regions that they had and uh, also didn't, wasn't able to match their, their support in terms of both percentage of the vote and total votes. I, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm uh, puzzled by this. Uh, you know, in his campaign, uh, Monsieur Legault and his um, immigration minister, Jean Boulet, came under fire for comments about immigration. You know, with Legault going so far as to say it would be suicidal for Quebec to increase its immigration levels. Uh, Mr. Boulet saying, you know, they don't speak French, they don't work, basically they're lazy, uh, which is not true. 82% speak French. The unemployment insur- uh, uh, rate is very low in those communities. So did it not have any impact on Quebec voters? I think it had an enormous impact. I think what what happened is François Legault and the CAC were rewarded for very bad behavior during the campaign. Like uh, Jean Boulet, who is the immigration minister and the person who is associated, he's the son of the founder of the Boulet Boot Company, so a very wealthy guy, um, said some stuff at a debate in his riding that was caught on camera. And it, it was terrible. Like those are the worst stereotypes that exist about immigrants and they're false, as you just pointed out. So that's just pandering to the fear of what's new, the fear that of what's different, especially in the regions, whereas Montrealers, you know, re- they rebuffed that in the most clear way. They refused. They either voted for, for the Liberals or they voted for Quebec Solidaire because they know better. They live in those environments. They are immigrants themselves or they live, their neighbors are immigrants. So I just find, I, I was really taken aback by that and I, I, I think it's disgraceful, actually, the way that this this whole immigration issue was handled. And I, 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 I'm not impressed with Monsieur Legault, near ni Monsieur Monsieur Boulet, and the caucus of the CAC, who basically didn't dissent, they didn't dissent from that message. And I, I think that's really a terrible way to consolidate your power. And I, this is a guy who's not a great campaigner, Monsieur Legault. He looked grumpy, and far from avuncular as he did during the pandemic. And uh, I think it was really ugly. And I am really, I'm, I'm very unhappy with the electoral results. And I, I, I don't know what Quebec Solidaire did that, yeah. you know, they need to fix their messaging. They, they got caught. I think it's partly because uh, Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois is new as a leader. He hasn't got a lot of experience leading a campaign. Last time out, it was Manon Massé, the co-leader. Uh, Dominique Alglad is a very good speaker, very smart woman from the business community. I I also just want to close by saying, I thought it was absolutely terrible that the premier and his and his colleagues called upon McKinsey, one of these huge consulting companies that came out during the election. They paid six million tax dollars to figure out how to do their message tracking from McKinsey, a company that Dominique Anglade once worked for. So this is a very cynical, uh, manipulative, Victory by the CAC, in my view. 
And interesting. Uh, that it was certainly an interesting result, although not uh, surprising. David Hortel and, like I said, Dawson, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks for joining us. Au plaisir. And stay with us. The Prime Minister promises help for Atlantic Canada's post-Fiona uh, post devastation, rather. But with climate disasters on the rise, how is the government meeting its ambitious promises? We take you to the Environment Commissioner next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. This $300 million is there uh, for supporting people rebuilding on uh, any uh, needs following uh, Hurricane Fiona. Uh, we know that there are already programs in place, uh, uh, agricultural programs, uh, disaster uh, mitigation uh, and, uh, and uh, financial assistance programs. Uh, this fund will be there for anyone who is not covered uh, by any of the other programs. And that was the Prime Minister announcing a $300 million recovery package for Atlantic Canada. That region of the country continues to pick up the pieces from post-tropical storm Fiona's vicious winds and rains. While the government reacts to the storm devastation, someone issued a warning earlier this year. That was Environment Commissioner Jerry DiMarco. His report earlier this year warned that Canada's infrastructure needs to be adapted to, with, to withstand weather, uh, severe weather, like Hurricane Fiona, for instance. The reporter said weak criteria to fund climate-ready infrastructures put the value of government investments into question. So did the government learn its lesson from that warning? Commissioner DiMarco has a new set of reports out today. How does he want the federal government to respond? Let's find out. Joining me now is Jerry DiMarco. Welcome, Commissioner. Good to have you on the show. It's good to see you. I, wa I want to start with post-tropical uh, uh, storm Fiona, because your report from, from the spring focused on the importance of climate-ready infrastructure. So now we've seen how important that is. And based on the government's response, is the government listening to your warning? I know it's close. It was spring and then we got this. But there have been warnings before your warning last spring. Yeah, indeed, the year before, we also said that uh, in our lessons learned on climate change, we said that the federal government needed to prioritize adaptation to prevent the worst effects of climate change. Now we're seeing those effects. It's very tangible. The uh, people in Atlantic Canada are feeling the effects of climate change, and they've also felt the effects of the biodiversity crisis with the collapse of the cod, which is another issue that we've talked about in our reports today. So Canada is listening. Uh, they did accept our recommendations from the spring on uh, climate-resilient infrastructure. We'll have to see in practice whether, whether those, uh, those promises are borne out in practice. Okay, so, so concretely, Commissioner, you know, so, so that people can understand what exactly, you know, your, your, your recommendations are and, and, and sort of what the government can actually do about them. So how does Canada need to improve uh, its investment process for, you know, climate-ready infrastructure? Will, you know, will it be ready for the next climate disaster? Like, how long would it take? How much money mm -hmm. would, would, would that take? 
Yeah, it'll take, I mean, we're going to be dealing with this for decades now, right? Because we didn't do enough, the world, including Canada, didn't do enough to mitigate climate change through the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. We're paying the price for that, literally, in terms of lives lost and, and the cost of new, of new infrastructure to withstand storms like Fiona. It'll cost billions, obviously. And, and we, in our report, said, if you're going to be spending that kind of money, Make sure that you have a proper climate lens to review these these expenditures. Don't just prioritize getting money out the door without checking to make sure that it really is, is going to be resilient infrastructure. So three hundred million dollars is what the government what the, what the prime minister promised for rebuilding. Is that is that enough to meet the criteria that you're talking about in your report? Well, we weren't really talking about the amount that's needed. It was more that for any amounts that are spent, and there'll be there'll be much more than that over the coming years. Any amounts that are spent on climate uh, resilient infrastructure, they need to have proper accounting for the their ability the, the, that infrastructure to withstand storms like this. It's not just about getting money out of the door, which is all, often the easy part. It's making sure that those are sound investments and that the, the infrastructure that's built with that money can withstand storms like Fiona or flooding in the Fraser River or or heat waves and so on. All of the, all of the things that are coming now with, with climate change getting as bad as it is. And I'm sure we're going to have ample opportunity to talk about this again. Uh, Environment Commissioner Jerry DeMarco, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And coming up, François Legault's Coalition Avenir Québec won 72% of the seats in Quebec's National Assembly, but with only 41% of the vote. Is Legault's decisive win a sign that the electoral system is perhaps distorted? Commentator in Montreal native Tasha Carradin will dig in with our press gallery next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. And welcome back. A commanding victory hands the Coalition Avenir Québec an even bigger majority in the legislature. But does the popular vote cast a shadow on the decisive victory? Take a look at this. Legault's uh, CAQ took just under 41% of the popular vote. But with that, they won 72% of the legislature's seats. You can see here they have 90 seats out of 125. That's a lot of seats. The, uh, the Liberal Party took 21 seats with 14.30% uh, of the popular vote. Quebec Solidaire secured 11 seats with 15% uh, of the popular vote. The Parti Québécois won three seats, had 14% as well of the popular vote. And the Conservatives got no seats despite having 12% of the popular vote or thereabout. So, so does the smash victory mask a divided Quebec? And, there, and is there an appetite for electoral reform? So let's bring in our press gallery panel to weigh in. Bob Fife is the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief. He is here in the studio with me. Uh, we are hoping to connect with Fatima Sayed. She's a reporter with the Narwhal. And our special, special guest, navigator principal Tasha Carradin. She was recently a campaign co-chair for conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest. So hello to both of you. Uh, nice to have you on the show. 
Um, Tasha, we see the discrepancy between the popular vote and the actual results and the number of seats. Um, <clears throat> François Legault, I remember that, promised before his last majority four years ago that he would go for electoral reform, then he won a majority, then he said no, and he was asked again today, and he said, no way, no way, I'm keeping my 90 seats and I love this electoral system. So, is it time for that? Because the smaller parties are clamoring for that. We hear this every time you have a result like this. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau went through this exercise in 2015 and promised it would be the last election that was held under the first past the post system federally, and while well, we've had uh, several since then. So uh, clearly, people tend to lose their appetite for it once they're in power. I think, though, here the interesting piece is the distribution of the vote. And when you look at that, it's clear that you've got uh, basically an urban-rural divide that's really happened. The island of Montreal is almost entirely red with some spots of orange. And then in the rest of the province, you have a couple of smatterings, but really it's mostly the CACs powder blue. And the Conservatives were shut out. Um, that, obviously, they're unhappy about. They're calling loudly for electoral reform. But every time uh, legislators put this to the voters, electoral reform fails. We've tried it in British Columbia and Ontario. There have been referenda on it. It never works. PEI, I mean, you know, people reject it. And so we always end up back where we are with first past the post. So I, I don't, I think this is a bit of a red herring. I think obviously the other parties are unhappy, but I don't think first past the post is, is the, the answer to this. So, but is it even fair, Bob? I mean, it's, it is true that the conservatives got almost the same popular vote as the liberals, just a few fewer points and yet got no seats so are we are, is that I, I find that that is a perfect example of the failures maybe of this system oh no it's it's totally a failure as we saw in the la last uh, election campaign federally as well the liberals won uh, uh, you know with what 35 percent of the vote and you know it 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 clearly is not a fair system but if we're going to but at the same time, you have to be careful with proportional representation so you don't end up like Israel, where you've got all these small parties um, and you have, and then even in Germany, where you have to negotiate and negotiate before you can form a government. And you have small parties that hold everybody hostage. So if we're going to go to some kind of proportional representation system, it needs to be well thought out so that the major parties uh, can get a majority. Uh, without leaving a situation where you're going to have small parties holding people to account. I think there's a way of designing it. I'm not exactly sure how, but yeah. uh, that's, a, that's my concern. That's, that, that's true. So, so we have Fatima Syed, I'm told. So um, you're welcome. Good to see you, Fatima. Um, you know, the CAQ got 40% of the popular vote, wins 90 of the 125 seats. But what's interesting, and, and Tasha spoke to that, is how the vote was divided in Quebec. And it's the first time a party other than the Liberals or the PQ wins two consecutive majorities. So things are changing uh, in Quebec. There are more, for the first time, five uh, parties running. Uh, it seems that it was the young leaders, uh, Quebec Solidaire and the PQ, that were left out in the lurch by the electoral system. Uh, they were talking about that today. What did you think about that? 
Yeah, well, unfortunately, you know, the incumbent system that we have in place right now rewards people who've been in power for a long time uh, because it allows them to just appeal to their base and uh, their regular voters and not really speak to everyone. Um, and, and that's why you see young people, the voices of ra racialized pe people and marginalized communities uh, not get any results during elections because they don't have the strong political currency that's needed to uh, succeed in the system that we have. So while I agree with Bob um, that, that it does need to be thought out, I think a little chaos is good because the turnout numbers right now are consistently very, very low. And, and that is deeply concerning. Yeah, I would have to disagree, actually. So, I think that what you did see in this election, like but, I said, is you saw um, a great concentration of votes for the newer parties, as is put in the island of Montreal, the urban vote. And there, yes, you have more racialized people will live um, in Montreal than the rest of the province. You have uh, a younger population as well. And it was reflected in the choices that they made. Now, arguably, a system like this, when you have five parties, will produce a very different result than when they had just three. And when you think back, there was a moment when Quebec Solidaire and the Parti Québécois were talking about getting together. Quebec Solidaire, they rejected this and they did not go forward with, with that. And I think probably a lot of people are wondering because they would have had 28% of the vote and probably concentrated in those ridings. So I think that it's a question of balance. Bob's right. You end up with coalitions basically until the end of time if you do have a multi-party system with proportional representation. If people want to choose that, it has to be put to the people, and consistently in Canada, they've rejected that option. Uh, Bob, uh, quickly, you, you know, before we, we get to another topic about the Quebec election, the Conservative, the the Conservative candidate did a, a very good campaign. There was, uh, he was being praised for the campaign he ran. He's a pretty well-known uh, character. He was a radio host before. We thought, and, and it was thought, oh, look, th this is an emerging, par emerging party in Quebec. It didn't work out at all. Zero seats for him. Yeah, and, you know, 13% of the vote is a lot. That's, I mean, that's a surprise uh, number in Quebec for the Conservative Party, particularly because uh, Legault's party is conservative uh, and, and nationalist. So you would think that a lot of them would feel more comfortable uh, just going, voting for um, the CAC and not, and not for the Conservatives. So it's... Uh, it, but I think it, it largely probably had to do more with uh, the vaccine, vaccination mandates than anything, uh, that there were a large portion of Quebecers who feel strongly about they didn't like the way Legault handled the, the vaccination mandate. I think that's probably largely the reason. We'll have to see how this plays out. But it's uh, and I think it's more interesting, frankly, how it's going to play out federally. Yes. Uh, to, that's what, that's I'm what I want to get to, okay. how, how it's going to play uh, federally, because the vaccine mandates were lifted completely while the campaign happened. So he lost a lot of his humph. But um, I think we're going to take a break. Bob, Fatima and Tasha stick around uh, and we'll come back. We'll uh, continue this uh, conversation coming up. François Legault says he is going to be the premier for all Quebecers, but did his controversial election comments about immigrants and systemic racism burn too many bridges for him to achieve that goal? Our press gallery will return next to weigh in. Stay with us. In 2018, if you remember, we were talking about uh, a lot about religious sign. I think and I hope 
that with the Bill 21, that is settled, that we turn the page. I know that some people are against the Bill 21, but I hope we don't reopen this discussion because it's not an easy discussion. So right now, I really want to concentrate on, on protecting French. And I know many Anglophones in Montreal who agree with that, that uh, we have to do something to stop the decline of French. So I think it will be, in a way, easier than talking about the religious sign. And welcome back. Despite a campaign troubled by controversies, François Legault secured a resounding majority last night for his party, Coalition Avenir Québec. Reminder, the CAQ leader came under fire during the election for linking immigrants with extremists and saying it would be suicidal for Quebec to accept more immigrants. Quebec's immigration minister, Jean Boulet, also came under fire for saying the majority of immigrants to the province go to Montreal, don't work, don't speak French, and don't adhere to Quebec values, uh, which uh, are not true except for most of them do uh, start in Montreal. Boulet was also re-elected last night. Despite these controversies, Legault had a congenial tone after his landslide victory, saying he was going to be the premier for all Quebecers. But does Legault's track record on immigration, his controversial secularism law and language reforms undermine his pledge? Let's bring back the press gallery panel, the Globe and Mail's Bob Fife, uh, the Narwhal's Fatima Syed, and our special guest columnist, Tasha Carradine, who is also principal with Navigator Limited. Nice to have you back, Tasha. You know, why not say what he said after the uh, campaign or, or as he won his victory during the campaign? Well, because he's been playing uh, the nationalist card. This is the interesting thing about the CAC. The CAC uh, came to be because... The sovereignty project for the PQ sort of fell off the rails. The Parti Québécois couldn't decide whether it was a separatist party, a nationalist party, and its supporter base also aged out. Uh, the CAC stepped into the breach with a sort of uh, softer approach in the sense of we are going to stand up for Quebec, we're going to support the French language, um, and then with the secularism law, uh, really um, appealed to, unfortunately, sentiments of people who, who may, you know, they wanted maybe a separatist Quebec or a Quebec that look like them. And that law, which restricts the ability to uh, choose to wear religious symbols, has been decried by new Canadians, by new Quebecers as an infringement of their personal rights. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a law that, yes, is popular with the majority of Quebecers, but certainly not with the minority. And it is a problem. It's going to be a problem going forward also because Quebec needs workers. Uh, the limit of 50,000 people a year is not going to cut it when you have people and companies now also in the regions of Quebec that voted for Legault saying, we have no one who can work in our businesses. So he's going to have to figure out um, how to square that circle. And I don't think that the, the limits he's set will actually make sense. And Legault, Bob, he supported the Conservatives in the last federal election. I'm wondering, how is this going to play out here in Ottawa, you know, relation Quebec-Ottawa and, you know, in the rest of the country? Essentially, as Tasha says, he is a Conservative Party with a nationalist, you know, sort of overtone. Well, uh, federally, um, you know, Trudeau will not want to offend uh, a guy who just got 90 seats in the Quebec legislature so I imagine he's going to soft pedal uh, concerns about Bill 21, um, regardless of the fact that this discriminates against uh, Orthodox Jews and Sikh 
members of the Sikh faith and, and Muslims who wear the, the hijab, for example. Uh, I think they're probably going to do that, and you'll see Pierre Polyev probably doing the same thing, although he's going to be playing, both liberal Trudeau and um, Polyev are going to be playing to immigrant communities in Toronto and in Vancouver and Calgary and, 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 and Winnipeg, for example. But, you know, will any of them actually have the courage to stand up to Legault on that and, and say, we, you know, we support taking this to the Supreme Court of Canada? I frankly doubt they'll have the courage. Well, no, it's an awkward, it's an awkward position for any uh, a politician here in, in Ottawa, any federal politician. So, uh, Fatima, how do you think the wedge issues played with Quebec voters, seeing how such a resounding majority voted uh, for the CAQ? Um, well, I wouldn't call it a resounding majority when compared to the full population of, of Quebec, but... Uh, I, I will say that I think time and time again we're seeing uh, you know people running for office use identity politics for short-term political gains. The problem with that is that it's deeply damaging to society in the long term. You know, if you look at P Quebec's population makeup in 1996, 6% made up visible, visible minorities. That number has more than doubled today. You know, the the society and the community that CAQ is is taking over today is very different and evolving very quickly, and it is heavily dependent on immigration. So it really is baffling when this election campaign started with, uh, you know, Legault's um, immigration minister being forced to apologize for saying that 80% of immigrants um, were, would hurt uh, French, Quebec society um, and, and, you know, subsequent incidents after that. And now, you know, the day after the election, uh, we're seeing increased reports of apprehension and Islamophobic incidents and, and, and wording in, in being spread um, online and offline. So I'm concerned. Uh, I think, you know, politicians should un have seen the dangers of, of, you know, this kind of rhetoric in other countries, such as the United States. Um, and it's high time we sort of start taking this out of the political discourse and actually serving the community as is. Natasha, do you think these controversial comments, I mean, it, it, it's, it's going to be awkward. There is going to be an awkward relationship probably between politicians here and, you know, François Legault. Were these, were these comments gaffes or were they intentional? Um, I think François Legault has a bad case of foot and mouth disease sometimes. Um, I don't think they were intentional, but what they do uh, is sort of belie, I guess, an ignorance perhaps of what the real, of how people feel about these issues. I mean, to say things um, like he did, uh, you know, linking things to violence. Um, well, the only violence really in Quebec that I can think of was actually against Muslims um, at that horrible uh, massacre, the mosque uh, in Quebec City. Uh, you know, so it, it's not like that, I mean, they were the victims. And, and just to say that immigration is linked to violence is ridiculous. He walked it back, but his immigration minister also, in fact, I was right, the, the comment he made about 80% of, uh, of immigrants still work. Uh, that's totally false. It's a stereotype. I don't know why you would even say that. Um, so I think that, you know, the, these kinds of gaffes, though, they sort of cement yeah. the sense feels about intolerance and not about, you know, any kind of, of real secularism. Can I just touch on what Fatan said? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, immigrants come to Quebec, they do l learn French. And they enrich the society Absolutely. and they provide uh, the productivity and Bob prosperity. Five, Fatima Syed, 
Uh, thanks, and Tasha Carradine, thanks for being there. And thank you for, that's your Power Play Day in Politics. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back right here tomorrow.